Good morning, and welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. Today is May the 3rd, Sunday morning. Hope that you and yours have had a great week. Today we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Acts, and we'll continue our study today. I uh, just want to make you aware of some of the resources that we, that uh, I have available for you and to study and to share with others if you want to. Um, we have uh, the Facebook page. Uh, this is Directional Bible Ministries. Uh, anyone can join this page. Um, I take all of the teachings. For example, this is the Word of God session. I do basically three teachings a week on Sunday mornings. The Word of, uh, on Sunday mornings, the Book of Acts, and then midweek study the Book of Daniel, and then at some point during the week I do a topical study, and I've been going through the Word of God session five. So you can see all these things are on this page on the Facebook page. And then notice, too, uh, I always include this, and these are links to where you can also find these studies. Uh, all of the studies, because I do have folks that simply prefer podcasts, uh, they'd rather listen to it. I have a, an account under SoundCloud, as you can see here, and SoundCloud, uh, all of the studies go, and they are just the audio. And then once I publish that on SoundCloud, it automatically turns it into a podcast. Uh, whatever podcasting device you may use on your iPhone, this right here is the, uh, the uh, Podcast Connect Apple, which is from iTunes. So all of these studies are there as well. And then also I take them and I put them on YouTube. So all the studies are on YouTube video format just as you're going to be watching now and then I also take them and I put them onto my blog and the uniqueness of the blog is that not only is it a link to YouTube uh, but it also uh, has all of the teaching notes so that you can follow along with the notes uh, the scriptures are there for you to take a look at as well so we have um we have the blog, we have SoundCloud, we have YouTube, and then we have the podcasting material. So everything's there uh, just for you to take a look at, for you to share with other folks who want to get on the train with us here as we're studying through the Bible. So I put this link up the other day, uh, a link to uh, Les Feldick, very good teaching, Galatians, um, talking about the two Gospels, so I'm, I'm constantly putting up different things for you to take a look at. So, anyway, I hope that kind of helps you in your studies. Uh, what we're going to do today is we are going to go ahead and start in Acts chapter number 4, and uh, we're going to pick up in verse 33, which is, um, we left off at 37 last week, but we're going to read verses 33 through 37 for context. And then we're going to get into chapter number five this week. So anyway, let's go ahead and go to the word, go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll begin our study. Father, we love you and do ask that you go before us now. Bless the reading of your word. Father, as we pray each week, open our eyes to see, because Lord, we do come to the Bible with filters, and Lord, we've been given those filters. 
uh, through life, whether it's our church or our own biases, Lord. Um, help us, Lord, just to see. Open our eyes and, Lord, open our ears to hear and not be hard to something that we've never heard before, Lord. We all tend to uh, get defensive when we hear things we've never heard before. And then also our hearts, Lord, to understand, most importantly. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, I've had a lot of good feedback from you guys in regards to uh, showing you my notes as well as the scripture as we're teaching along. Apparently, some of you would rather see that than my face. <laughs> so we'll go back and forth between that as we go. Because some of you said that uh, that really did help you in your study. And that's what I want to do. I'm not doing this for my own benefit. I'm uh, I'm doing it for our benefit. Certainly, my studies are precious to me, and I enjoy them. Uh, and I just want to share that. God's given me a pastor's heart. And as such, I love to... Uh, teach the Bible. I love to uh, watch other people grow in their walks with the Lord as well. That's a passion that the Lord has given to me. So so let's go ahead and look uh, in Acts uh, chapter 4 and verse number 33. This is where we left off last week, uh, verses 33 through 37. And with great power, gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of, uh, resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands and houses sold them, and brought the prices of the things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according to as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now again, we've talked about this. There is nothing in this language that pertains to the church today. Nothing. I am sure that there are some, but how many of you um, have had a pastor ask you to sell everything that you own and come and lay it at his feet or donate it to the church. Um, we just don't do this today. And we talked about why they did this. They did this because they believed that they were going into Daniel's 70th week. That's what they believed. And that it was going to be immediately followed by the second coming of Christ to establish his kingdom. I was at a pastor's conference a couple years ago. And this is when I first started going down this, this path, uh, what you would call the mid-acts position. And um, it started for me with a question. Um, what if the nation of Israel had accepted Jesus. Now, for me, the, the question started with, what if the nation of Israel had accepted the witness of Jesus and not crucified him and accepted him as the, their Messiah? Now, when I asked that question of myself and I said, well, if, if they would have, he would have never went to the cross. 
But then as I began to study scripture, the Old Testament prophesied that he had to go to the cross. So going to the cross was not an option. Christ had to go to the cross. So that had to have meant that there, there, the offer of the kingdom could not have come before Acts 2. And then I began to study and saw where it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is nigh, is at hand. And what that means is it's close, but it's not here yet. Well, when was it here? Well, when it was officially offered, which would have been Acts 2. They had Pentecost. Well, if Acts 2 was the offer of the kingdom to the nation of Israel, what has the body of Christ got to do with that? And you see, I mean, I started asking these questions. And as I began asking these questions, my answers I was uncomfortable with because they flew in the face of everything that I had been taught, everything that I myself had taught. And I began to question those things. I began to slowly pull off the filters and then answered the what ifs. And every time I come up with a new answer, I had a new question. <laughs> so I've been going down this road uh, for a little over a year now, maybe a year and a half now. And I'm gonna, I would encourage you to do the same thing. Because again, what's going on here in these verses has nothing to do with the body of Christ today and everything to do with the kingdom church has everything to do with the Jewish believers who still at this point had the opportunity to accept their Messiah and his kingdom offer. I remember one of the questions that I asked myself was what if um, they had accepted Peter's offer? And then I'm, I'm like, you know, in Acts 2 is his Pentecostal sermon. And then I began to say, well, some of them did. Yeah, but it wasn't an individual offer. It was an offer to the nation. The nation was called upon to repent. And had they repented, they would have went into Daniel's 70th week. The Messiah would have come and he would have used them to reach the Gentiles with the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, of course. And again, all that started to shatter a lot of the foundations that I had, that had been laid in my life, and I began to question them. And I would encourage you to ask those questions. Randy White uses this statement, question the assumptions. Question the assumptions. We just read the Bible and assume things that are not there. We read Acts 2 and assume that's the birth of the church. Well, you know, I don't think so. And Les Feldick recommended a book called by William R. Newell. And the name of this book is Paul versus Peter Remarks on Galatians 1 and 2. I just showed you a video uh, on my Facebook page where actually... Les is going through this, talking about this in this in this video that I would, I would highly recommend to you right here, um, teaching on the two Gospels. So Les is talking about that, but he pulls a quote out um, 
is it not strange that 16 or 17 chapters of the book, if we include chapter 9, is given wholly to that apostle which was not one of the original 12? He was not converted until long after Pentecost. Must there be a deep reason for this? And that's the question that William R. Newell asks in this book, Paul versus Peter. And what is the reason? One thing is certainly evident already that as, as we Gentiles have a relationship to Paul that we do not have with the other apostles, exactly what that is, we must prayerfully seek to discover. William R. Newell posed that question back in the 1920s and 30s. If my memory serves me correct, he pastored churches in Chicago, St. Louis area. Mid-Acts folks are constantly getting accused of making too much of Paul. In reality, it's not that we're making too much of Paul. It's that we understand that Paul and Peter had different ministries. Peter's ministry was to the house of Israel, and Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles. And of course, I think last time we were together, it was settled at the council in Jerusalem. When Paul went back and told them what was going on, it was settled there that Peter and the eleven would go to the house of Israel and Paul would go to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 15, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. In other words, the Gentiles do not have to convert to Judaism. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the law. Acts 15, 22. But then it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch. And Antioch, you'll remember, is where they were first called Christians. With Paul and Barnum's, namely Judas, named surnamed Barsabas and Silas, chief among the brethren, and they wrote letters by them after this manner, the manner the apostles and the elders and the brethren send greeting unto the brethren, which are the Gentiles in Antioch. Antioch was Antioch was a Gentile fellowship. Jerusalem was a Jewish fellowship. The twelve apostles, that's including the newly elected Matthias was to continue to go to the house of Israel, to the nation of Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, and Paul was to go to the Gentile church in Antioch. And Les refers to this in that video that I just shared with you, I would encourage you, uh, in Galatians chapter 2. Then 14 years after I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and I took Titus with me also, he's referring to that Jerusalem council in Acts 15, <clears throat> and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them who are, were of reputation. Now he's speaking of the apostles. Lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. He wanted to make sure they were on the same piece of paper. But neither Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. In other words, these, these Grecian believers, these Gentile believers were being told they had to be circumcised by the Judaizers. In verse 4, and that because of false brethren unawares had brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, and those false brethren unawares, he's referring to Jews, 
which we have in Christ, that we they might bring us into bondage. In other words, they wanted to put them under Jewish law. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now again, when he uses the word gospel there, he's obviously not referring to the kingdom gospel. Because the kingdom gospel required repentance and baptism. The kingdom gospel was for the nation of Israel. That's why the Judaizers were saying these guys had to be circumcised. They needed to become Jews. And then he says in verse number six, but of these who seem to be somewhat whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no person. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. In other words, they didn't know what I was talking about. It was Paul who revealed to Peter and the others the gospel of grace. They didn't know the gospel of grace. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, now obviously, they were two different gospels. One gospel was for the circumcision, the Jew, and the other gospel was for the uncircumcision, the Gentile. For he who wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the saint, excuse me, was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. So clearly, two different Gospels here. And again, we get mid-Acts folks constantly get accused of making too much of Paul. But sadly, those of us who have the necessity of making this distinction between the ministries of Paul and Peter the gospel of grace and the gospel of the kingdom, are accused of being at best troublemakers. But in actuality, we're not trying to divide the body. I mean, we're, we're just trying to rightly divide the truth. You know, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. The word of God has to be rightly divided. We're not trying to divide the church. Now we are trying to divide the kingdom church from the the grace church. <laughs> we are trying to divide the Jewish believer church of Acts, the first several chapters of Acts from uh, the body of Christ, the church which you and I are a part of. But that doesn't make us heretics. I mean, seriously, just because we we disagree as to when the church started. The real problem, and I'm just being honest here, is that our view calls into question your view, especially those who have a covenant or a charismatic theology. To the covenant folks, if we're correct, your church has not replaced Israel and you are not God's elect, which pretty much blows your doctrine out of the water. To the charismatic folks, if the church was not born on Pentecost, then Pentecost has nothing to do with you, and your entire experience is going to have to be seriously questioned. Those are the two groups that I have found have the hardest time with the mid-acts position. Now again, as we move forward, I mean, if you still believe that there's no difference between the church today and the church then, let's look at chapter 5. Because God is killing people who misrepresent him by pretending to do something they are not actually doing. I mean, if God was still 
working this way today, most of the churches would even be more empty than they are now because people would be dead. Look over in, let's continue in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan fulfilled, or why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but you have actually lied to God. Now, to understand what's happening here, you need to remember that in the two previous chapters, what happened with Barnabas, who sold his land and laid the money at the apostles' feet? I mean, that was all born out of everyone selling everything that they had to bring it into the common kitty, if you will, so that no one would have lack. Now, apparently, Ananias and Sapphira felt they had something to gain by doing the same thing that Barnabas had done in the previous verses. But unlike Barnabas, they misrepresented themselves and kept back some of the proceeds. Now, we don't know if Barnabas kept back some of the proceeds. We simply do not have enough context to make a determination of that. However, we do know that these two were deceptive. And apparently, whatever Barnabas did, he was not deceptive about it. These guys were playing hypocrites. They were pretending like they were giving everything from the sale of their possession. Again, if God took care of hypocrisy this way today, we would all be dead. (laughs) How many of us have not played the hypocrite? We've all played it before. Now notice in verse number six, and the young man arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, who apparently hadn't got the memo, not knowing this was done, came in, and Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. A little bit of entrapment here, isn't it? Because her husband had already lied to him. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. And then Peter said unto her, How is that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came in and found her dead, and carried her forth, buried her by her husband. And no wonder great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Notice that many signs and wonders were wrought among the people. That is exactly what the Lord told the apostles would happen in Acts 1.8. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea, and in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. 
ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. When did the Holy Ghost come upon them, and when did they receive that deutimus, that dynamite power? Acts chapter number 2. So all these signs and wonders that were being wrought among the people were, were told in Acts 1.8 what happened. Again, the demonstration of power was to convince the nation of Israel that Jesus was who he said he was. And then secondly, notice that they were on Solomon's porch or portico. That is the temple. They were still meeting in the temple. Are you taking notes? They were still meeting in the temple. In Acts 3, 1, you'll remember, and Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. Why were Peter and John still going to the temple? Because nothing had told them not to go to the temple. So this implies that they were still taking their sacrifices and obeying the law. The only difference was that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, there was no First Baptist Church of Jerusalem at this time. They were still going to the temple. They were still participating in the sacrifices. They were still being obedient to the Old Testament. Now, but notice verse number 13. And the rest durst no man join himself to them, and the people magnified them, and believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both men and women. Remember, these believers were Jewish, not Gentile. If they were Gentile, they were proselytized Gentiles. They were Gentiles that had come under the, Jew the Mosaic law. They had been circumcised. If it was referring to any Gentiles, it was referring to proselytized Gentiles. And then notice verse 15. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Notice, every single one of them were healed. Again, fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Every one of them were healed. We are not operating under this today. Not at all. Not everyone is healed. I've buried way too many people to believe that. You remember in Philippians 2.27, Paul said, For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Why was Paul not able to heal him? Because Paul was not operating under that dispensation. Paul was not operating under the kingdom gospel. Also in 1 Timothy 5, 2, drink no longer, he was speaking to Timothy, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine own infirmities. Well, Paul, why didn't Paul just heal him? He was not operating under the kingdom gospel by this point. Now, initially, Paul was, when Paul was converted, he was converted under the kingdom gospel. He was converted, and he actually taught it for a little while until the mystery, the hidden mystery, was revealed unto him. And then he began to teach the gospel of grace. Now notice in verse number 17, 
Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were, were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Interesting two verses. We need to unpack them. <clears throat> These guys were still operating under Acts 1-8 with kingdom authority. We need to remember that Jesus told the apostles in John 14, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me the works that I do, he shall do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. Anybody that takes those verses and pulls them into the current day is taking this out of context. He is speaking to the apostles. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. The whole purpose of the signs and the wonders and the miracles was to glorify the Father through the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Is God operating this way today? No. Does that mean God doesn't answer prayer? Sure, God answers prayer, but we are not operating. I know entire ministries. I know a ministry that's even named Acts 1-8. Okay? I know entire ministries that function out of this. And again, they're pulling things out of context. No doubt God can do anything he wants to, but we cannot, in all honesty, pull this verse out of context today. What happened in Acts cannot be replicated. Why? Because it doesn't apply to us. It never will apply to us. It's for the nation of Israel. Notice at the end of the verse it says, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Now, what does that mean, all the words of this life? This emphasis is not on the afterlife, but this life, the life they were living at the time. The point is that they had a decision to make as to the king and his kingdom, and it had to be made in this life. The next one would be too late. The words of this life were, this is the kingdom gospel, repent, be baptized, and the kingdom will be given. That was the words of this life. And then I'll use you guys to reach the Gentile nations. That was the words of this life. That's what they were teaching. That's what they were told to go stand in the temple to the people, all the words of this life. Now notice verse 21. And when they had heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and they taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came and found them in the prison, they returned and told, saying, and found them not in the prison, they returned and said, saying, the prison, saying, the prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keeper standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man therein. 
Now, when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted them whereunto this they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. They were really worried about this spreading. Now, then came one of them and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple, and they're teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, we, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, with your teaching, and in you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So what we see here is they've been released from prison and they went and done exactly what they were told not to do by the council previously, which was teach in this name. And were now dragged before the council again, peaceably, of course, because they were afraid of the people. And notice that the primary concern of the council was that they, the apostles, were intending to pin the death of Jesus on them. Now, what's interesting is how did they arrive at that conclusion? Nothing in the text indicates that their message was other than the words of this life mentioned in verse 20. Well, obviously, the words of this life were in regards to who Jesus was and what he came to do. And they had put him to death. Randy White points out that up to this point, the death of Jesus had not been presented as good news. Rather, it was something that needed to be repented of. It would not be until Paul that the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ would be viewed as good news. To the nation of Israel, it was bad news. That was the whole message of Pentecost. You have killed him by wicked hands. You have taken this man and slain the nation of Israel. And they said, well, what should we do? And Peter said, repent. Repent of what? Killing the Messiah and be baptized. So again, the kingdom gospel was all about repentance for what they had done. The gospel of grace, on the other hand, is all about belief in the death, burial, and the resurrection, not repentance for the death, burial, and the resurrection. The body of Christ did not kill the Messiah. The nation of Israel killed the Messiah. To further elaborate, under the, under the gospel of the kingdom presented by Peter, the death of Christ was bad news. Because the nation was guilty. The nation was guilty. However, under the gospel of grace as presented by Paul, it became good news to you and to me. And I believe this is exactly what Paul meant when he said in 1 Timothy 2, 6-7, He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, wherein to I am ordained a preacher. Now notice it says, he gave himself a ransom for all. That was not only the nation of Israel, but also the Gentiles. And it would be borne out. It would be testified in due time. How? Through Paul, 
who was ordained a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth or verity. So Jesus died for all, but the nation of Israel was, cru was guilty of crucifying him. What was bad news for them became good news for us. That's what Paul meant by that. And then look at verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Now, some believe that Peter was referencing Deuteronomy 21.18 in regards to his remark about the tree. Because where we see this in Deuteronomy 21, it says, if you have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father and the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him to the elders of the city and unto the gate of this place. So as you can see, there were no juvenile detentions back then. They didn't have that problem. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn, he's rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Do you remember who else was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard or a wine-bibber? Jesus and his followers. And all the men of this city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, and his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land may not be defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance." So they seem to be referencing that when, when he said, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you slew and hung on a tree. If so, the point would be that they had treated the Lord in the same way. He came into his own and his own received him not. They treated him like a disobedient son. And then he says in verse 31, Him hath God exalted to his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance, who? To Israel and forgiveness of sins. That is a pretty good contrast between how they view Jesus as a rebellious, drunk, wine-bibber, gluttonous, who needed to be punished, and how God viewed Jesus. God saw him as an exalted prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. What a contrast, huh? The way they viewed him and the way God viewed him. And in verse 32, and we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. Why? does Peter bring the Holy Spirit into it at this point? I believe this is crucial. We need to listen carefully. He did so because if they were going to continue to reject them and their witness, they were going to reject the Holy Spirit and his witness. 
And as such, they were in danger of committing the unpardonable sin. Look in Matthew chapter 12, and I'll show this to you. Matthew 12, 31, Jesus said, Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whoso speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. So the fact that they had crucified the Lord, God was willing to forgive them for that. But whoso speaketh against the Holy Ghost, and others reject the message, the witness of the Holy Ghost in regards to the king and his kingdom, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor the world to come. They could be forgiven for what they had done to God's Son, but they would not be forgiven for blaspheming and rejecting the Holy Spirit. This particular sin cannot be committed today in this particular sense. Now, however, applicationally, sure, if you reject the witness of God, if you reject the gospel of grace, if you reject, you're rejecting the Holy Spirit and therefore you're dying without salvation and therefore it's an unpardonable sin. In other words, you're going to die and go to hell. It's not going to be forgiven you. But, it, in its truest sense, it's applying to the nation of Israel. And Peter is telling them, you guys are getting ready to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You guys are getting ready to commit the unpardonable sin. And notice that Peter says that the Holy Ghost is given to them that obey him. The Holy Ghost is given to them that obey Him. Why? Obedience is still required under the law and the gospel of the kingdom. Obedience was still required. They had to repent. They had to be baptized. Of course, in context, Peter is accusing them of not being obedient in rejecting their Messiah. Today, the Holy Spirit is given simply by belief but works were required then because they had to repent. They had to be baptized. You and I, that is not a part of the gospel of grace. All we have to do is, is believe. So again, what Peter is teaching here, and we are his witnesses of these things, in other words, we saw this, our witness is true, and so is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey, repent and be baptized, which means they accept the message of the Messiah. And then notice verse 33, and when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and they took counsel to slay them. Wow. <laughs> when they heard it, they took counsel how they could kill these guys. The nation was about to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which would not be forgiven. And as a result, they were going to be set aside. Romans eleven twenty five. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. 
And so all Israel shall be saved. Notice it's a national salvation. It's not an individual salvation in regards to the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is for national salvation. The gospel of grace is for individual salvation. As it is written, they, they shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them. Who's them? The nation of Israel, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. The gospel is the gospel of grace. They have become enemies so that you and I can receive the gospel of grace. But as touching the election, the election is referring to the Jewish people, not you. They are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. In other words, God has not changed his mind. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through what? Their unbelief. The only reason the gospel of grace was offered to you and me was because of their unbelief. Even so, have these also now not believed that through your mercy, they also may obtain mercy. Now, when he says, even so, these also now not believed, he's referring to the, to the Jews who still had not believed. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, referring to the Jews, that he might have mercy upon all of us, including the Gentiles. Man, you want to see somebody hack up um, the book of Romans, listen to a covenant theologian. They will absolutely trash the gospel of Romans, especially 9, 10, and 11. And then notice verse 34. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, who had a reputation among all the people, and he commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and he said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. So now we have the voice of reason here, Gamaliel. Now we don't know much about him, but we do know that he was Paul's teacher. In Acts 22.3, I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye are this day. So we don't know much about him, but we know that, Peter, that Paul was taught by him. Paul was tutored at his feet. We also know that he was a highly respected rabbi because he had been given the prestigious title of Rabon, which only seven other rabbis ever received in Israel's history. And we are at minute 46. So we're going to go ahead and stop there for today. But I, I hope that you've enjoyed our study. I am... I'm loving going through this, and I hope you are too. And, and as I'm being challenged, I hope that you are challenged too. Don't be discouraged. I mean, as you, as you begin to look at the scripture through the correct lens, if you will, understanding what exactly is going on, rightly dividing the word of truth, 
You're dividing truth from truth, not error from truth. There is a truth that applies to the nation of Israel, and there is a truth that, that applies um, to the Gentiles, to the body of Christ. I know it's challenging because we fall back on what we have been taught. So I encourage you, be challenged by it. Go to the scripture, study, listen to the word of God. Open the word of God and just start reading and ask yourself, who is speaking here? Who are they speaking to? And what did the hearers understand in regards to what was being said? Don't put yourself in those verses. Don't put your church in those verses. Who was speaking? Who were they speaking to? And what did the hearers understand as being said? And I promise you start doing that. It'll radically change your, the way you view scripture. Next time we get together, we'll pick up in Acts chapter number five, verse number 36. Father, we love you. Just thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the teaching of your word. Help us to grow thereby. And I pray that the Lord would bless you and keep you until we meet again. God bless.